You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Fellowship with you again and to, uh, to enjoy the music and uh, to return to 2 Corinthians. Um, and uh, when I was last preaching, we finished uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That was in the evening, and uh, so today, uh, this evening, we're going to start 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's fairly simple, Um, and as we do so, we just want to note that um, in chapter 10, Paul is returning to the kind of theme and tone um, of uh, chapters uh, 1 to 7. Uh, He's had a bit of a, what, what some see as such a huge digression, it must have been written at some other time or, or, or whatever, uh, to talk about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, uh, encouraging generosity in chapters 8 and 9. Um, and, uh, and yet in actual fact, chapters 8 and 9 are, are not really a digression at all. Um, and uh, the example of them collecting money for the church in Jerusalem and what was holding them back from doing that, and what needed urging upon them, because they were kind of slowing down and holding back, um, all that was symptomatic of the very problems that Paul had been writing about in the first seven chapters. And um, so there's really not just such a huge lurch of subject or tone through 2 Corinthians. The basic um, sort of message of, of the letter remains the same. So what Paul is doing is writing um, a tremendously open, honest, uh, vulnerable, heartfelt, emotionally charged letter uh, to defend himself uh, against false charges that have been made against him uh, in his absence as well as in his presence in the church in Corinth. Um, But not simply to defend himself as if he's being precious about himself because the attack is really ultimately on the gospel that Paul was preaching. And those who have come in and influenced the Christians in Corinth, um, who have come in uh, to uh, discredit Paul's gospel, have done the, the, the thing that you know, will most often happen if you want to discredit somebody's message um, and if you want to stop people following them, then you, you go for them. Uh, you, you play the man, not the ball, so to speak. And uh, so Paul writes this tremendously heartfelt letter and really opens himself up to the church in Corinth and in so doing, um, not only defends the authenticity of his, go- of his gospel, Uh, But he reminds the Corinthian Christians of the difference between the way the world works and the way that those who are in Christ work. The difference between um, what is uh, good according to the world's gauges and what is good in Christ. And he returns to this here in chapter 10 um, as he begins what the NIV heads in, uh, sort of begins again his defense of, of his ministry. Um, And what we're going to see in the first 11 verses that we'll read together in a moment or two is how he concentrates on himself as, if you like, as a leader and an influencer um, within not only the church in Corinth, but uh, throughout all those places where he had preached the gospel. Um, So let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, he's going to return to uh, take up the collection that um, Titus has sort of gone to Corinth to encourage them to, to have ready. He's also going to return and check that they've dealt with um, the people in the church who were causing so much trouble and stirring everything. Um, So there's kind of a twofold purpose to this this visit. Um, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold in a way, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, 
who think that we live by the standards of this world, we being Paul and his companions in the work of the gospel. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that we are in our letters when we are absent, that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Well, here's a couple of quotes just to, to, to get our minds into uh, the, the gist of what's going on here. First is from Jonathan Lamb's uh, Crossway Bible Guide, um, Discovering Two Corinthians. And uh, believe it or not, that's published by Crossway, hence the Crossway Bible Guide, the supreme dint of creativity. Um, and uh, it, Jonathan, um, I was speaking with him just before the book came out a while ago, and uh, he was saying it's, it's absolutely, totally his favorite book because of the vulnerability and the realism of the difference between worldly leadership and, and, and sort of organizational life and Christian um, organizational life. Well, in it, Jonathan writes this, the false teachers in Corinth had certain expectations of a spiritual leader expectations that were shaped by the Greek culture of the day. So think of your own leaders here. Leaders were eloquent orators with an impressive physical presence. So David's okay, you're fine. And uh, Weakness was not a word in their vocabulary. As spiritual gurus, there was something otherworldly about them. They would claim to have mystical experiences, special revelations, a spiritual hotline, which mark them out as special. Paul responds with a series of passionate arguments, each of which tells us something not only about Paul's calling as an apostle, but also about the features we should look for in all true Christian leadership. Paul is not protecting his touchy honor or concerned to defend his own reputation at all costs, but is motivated by, motivated by entirely different concerns. He is deeply concerned for the welfare of the Corinthian believers. And he wants to be sure that they are not captured by false notions of the gospel. His fierce response is motivated not by personal pique, but by compassion for others and a conviction that he must defend the gospel itself. Uh, Don Carson, in his book, From Triumphalism to Maturity, um, uh, which is in the Biblical Classics Library uh, Paternosters uh, series, um, writes this, We increasingly inhabit a time and place in Western history when humility is perceived to be a sign of weakness, when meekness is taken for a vice, not a virtue, when puff is more important than substance, when leadership, even in the church, frequently has more to do with politics, pizzazz, and showmanship, or with structure and hierarchy than with spiritual maturity and conformity to Jesus Christ. When the budget is thought to be a more important indicator of ecclesiastical success than prayerfulness, and when loose talk of spiritual experience wins an instant following, even when that talk is mingled with a scarcely concealed haughtiness that has learned neither humility nor tears, Christians hungry to understand and repent of these evils. 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 speaks with rare power and passion. So what's at stake here is a completely worldly, Greek, totally Corinthian 
attitude to not only church leadership, but therefore church life, and with that, the impact of the gospel and what the gospel is supposed to do in your life, and therefore, whether or not Paul was preaching the the true gospel or not, and how you should follow Christ. So, the passage that we read, um, we we can sort of group it into into four sections, four paragraphs, if you like. Um, So, the the first, verses 1 and 2, Paul just lays it down right at the very beginning that the model for leadership in the church is not um, the uh, sort of picture of leadership that was prevalent in Corinth, um, not the kind of picture that both um, uh, Jonathan Lamb and and, uh, Don Carlson were just writing about there. Um, This is not the kind of leadership which is, um, as we mentioned right back at the beginning of the 2 Corinthians series, roughly speaking this time last year, reassuringly expensive, This is not the model of leadership which is showy and power-hungry and just wants to lap up as much adulation as possible. That's the kind of worldly leadership that was being pushed on the Corinthians who were, for all sorts of reasons, immature enough to be gullible for that. On the contrary, the model for leadership in the church is the person who is not somewhere else and an example which we then bring into the church, but is the true leader of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. So the model for every human leader is the true leader. The model for every under-shepherd is the shepherd. The model for every pastor is the pastor. The model for every minister is the one who has ministered to us from the Father in the power of the Spirit. And, And Paul just lands on it straight away by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Now, that meekness and gentleness is, um, at this stage in Paul's ministry with the church in Corinth, it's rather like an iron hand in a velvet glove. Um, it's, 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 it's not weak. So he's not a pushover, and he's not just trying to be sort of nicey-nicey, and he's not going to be, you know, useless with them. He has a message to convey. It is a, it is a hard message to hear. It's, it's tough empathy, if you like, tough love. But it is all coming from Christ. And so by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he isn't half as forceful as he could have been. And his meekness is not a sign of being weak and wishy-washy. It is a sign of the kind of realism before God. Um, Not just gentleness, but a sort of a lowliness and a humility. He knows his place. Just as Christ knows his place, And his place is to do the Father's will even though it takes him to a cross. To make himself nothing. Humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as as, as the old saying goes, if you think it's weak to be meek, try being meek for a week. It just goes against the grain of just about everything in us by nature, at least the fallen nature goes against the grain of our assertiveness. goes against the grain of the way our insecurity shows itself in sort of over-the-top forcefulness. goes against the grain of our competitiveness. Even the sort of spiritualized versions of competitiveness. goes against the grain of any jealousy or envy that might lead to strife. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, when face to face with you, but bold went away, the charge that was laid against him. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we, Paul and his companions, but Paul particularly, live by the standards of this world. So in one sense, he, he said the whole thing in the first two verses. 
or he's given us the, the, the framework for the whole thing in the first two verses. His ministry is not by the standards of this world. It is by the meekness and gentleness of Christ that he appeals. So before we go any further, we've just got a, a, a window opening on real leadership in the church. Uh, it is something that is not only authorized by Christ, as, as we're going to see in verses uh, 7 and 8, it is something that is just completely done like Christ, in the spirit of Christ. Leadership is done in imitation of Christ. You remember how, how Paul's already written to the church in Corinth back in the first letter that we have in the New Testament, saying, be, be an imitator of me, even as I imitate Christ. And yet there is this, this sort of basically worldly tendency. Worldliness, not, not measured in terms of you know, how much you've got and whether you've got three washing machines in the house or just you know, humble with one or something. Um, or whether, whether you've got you know, five cars in the driveway. It's not the kind of worldliness we're talking about. The kind of worldliness which, which is a deep-seated, philosophical, dispositional worldliness. That we just think like the world. We don't just think some of the things the world thinks you know, the bottom line is the bottom line, get more stuff, we actually think in the way that the world thinks. So we use the world's gauges and apply those to people. Do they look good? Are they dressed really well? Do they sound, you know, particularly for, for those who are, who, who, you know, when we're gauging preachers and church leaders, do they sound, you know, you know really, kind of, have we got a good one, you know? Um, Back in the 90s, um, uh, the American uh, sociologist, uh, Neil Postman, um, who was uh, a, a kind of a prodigy of Marshall McLuhan, um, Neil Postman wrote a, a very uh, astute book, um, well, I think I, I liked it, um, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Some of you may have come across that. Uh, and in it, Neil Postman was, was talking about the breakdown in American society of the, the quality and level of public and political discourse. So he, he sort of went back to an age when, when politicians and, and public leaders would stand up and they would speak in complete sentences, for instance. Um, and nobody cared what they looked like. Most people never got to know what they would look like. And he was comparing that with, with um, uh, the, uh, the, the scene back there in the... Uh, the late 80s, 90s. Um, what he would write now, I don't know. Um, but uh, that's, uh, we, 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 over on this side of the Atlantic, we, we can't really crow very much, can we? Um, so uh, in it, he, he, he lamented the way in which American politicians have become what he described a cross between a game show host and a newscaster with a bit of a weather reporter thrown in. So you've got to look good and sound good and lively and bouncy, but you've got to have some of the gravitas of the, of the newsreader, uh, and you've got to be as, as chatty and everything as the weather forecaster. And no longer does it count what you think, no longer does your character count, no longer does your capacity to engage intellectually with the issues of the day. It's all down to sound bites and camera presence and how, good, how, how well you come across on TV or wherever. So first century Corinth uh, is not that different from now. So how does that pan out for us when we're thinking about leadership in Christian circles, in the church, in our individual congregations, but more widely, the influence that people have. If we're being honest with ourselves, we, we, we want people, or we respond very positively to people who come across well on camera. Because so much of what we do when we're downloading is visual. We, we want people who sound pretty slick and eloquent, we want people who can um, just, just sort of capture our imagination with a few uh, well-turned phrases. We want people who aren't going to stretch us in our thinking 
and we certainly don't want people who are going to challenge us too much and get a bit too close to the bone. And we want people who, the, the, the danger is, we want people who are just like professionally competent, but we don't necessarily want to know them. And that's the kind of approach to, to what we want from, from leadership in the church that is just worldly. So we've got some overlays on that. We want them to exercise vicarious poverty because we know that poverty is virtuous. We don't want it, but we'll have the church leader have it instead. That's fine. Because we're doing vicarious poverty. And a few other things as well, double standards here, there, and everywhere. And we want the minister's kids to be absolutely dazzlingly brilliant at everything, uh, particularly um, behavior. Um, And yet it's a million miles from the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And it exerts a pressure on, on, on leaders to begin to live, engage themselves, not by the character of Christ, but by, end of verse 2, the standards of this world. So in this is in his first two verses. He begins verse 1 with the real thing. He ends verse 2 with what they're being charged with, which is the, the false thing. And those are the two brackets, if you like, that frame the whole of the rest of what he's going to be writing as he tries to move uh, the Christian's encouraged from a mindset of triumphalism and, and populism to maturity. And so he goes on um, in verses uh, 3 to 6 to talk about what it is that they have been using in their ministry. If, if their ministry is shaped by Christ, is in imitation of Christ, is filled with the Spirit of Christ, if their ministry is in, in one sense the continuation in the power of the Spirit of what Jesus began in his ministry, then what does it look like? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, that the, he, he casts it immediately in terms which would not really belong at all with the nice, slick, comfy, professional uh, orator, or, or, oratorial approach. I don't mean like, you know, an oratorio. I mean... That's, a, that's like Messiah. Uh, I mean, an oratorial, as in the, the fancy uh, speaking thing. He, he takes it right out of all that, and he, he just drops on them, so to speak, the real nature of what is going on in the work of the gospel. The real nature of what is going on in the work of the gospel is not some really neat public speaking uh, with a whole lot of rhetorical tools in the toolbox, all deployed in just the right way, and if you do it right, out will pop a new church or something like that. Now, the real nature of Christian ministry and gospel ministry is warfare. Warfare, which is, it's, it's the kind of close combat stuff. Warfare would not have meant to anybody in Corinth or Paul and his companions, nobody in that world would have thought of warfare as something clean and clinical and remote. Nothing was laser-guided from 20 miles away. Nothing was done with drones. The only warfare people knew was close, hand-to-hand, -hand, messy, gritty, bloody, messy, horrible fighting. It was ugly, and there was nothing nice about it at all, and nobody fought clean. There wasn't even a Geneva Convention to break. Nobody boxed by the Marquess of Queensbury's rules. Because the warfare was not with people. The warfare was against Satan and his strongholds and his minions. So when, 
Uh, he talks about them not being worldly, though they're in the world. He doesn't paint a picture of slick sort of professionalism. Neither, by the way, does he paint a picture of heavenly ease. As if, he was be, as if it was the case that if he'd been a really godly person, everything would have just happened easily and successfully and neatly and tidily. That if, if, if Paul was really God's man for the job, then you would have had nothing but glorious and heavenly success. So being in the world, it's not just being not of the world in that sort of, um, uh, sort of reassuring, expensive way. It also means that you know, we're not out of this world as if something is so heavenly that it's just going to be really nice all the time and it's going to be comfortable and there's going to be no opposition and there's going to be no spiritual warfare in the whole thing. As if an advance for the gospel is an advance like, you know, you're shoving a sword into a marshmallow or something. No resistance. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war. What, a, what an astonishing thing. We, we do not do gospel work. How, how might we put it? We do not do our evangelism. We don't do our church planting. I mean, what might we put in there? How many of us, if we were writing that sentence, would have said, though we live in the world, we do not wage war? But that's what it's about. That's what it is. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's cleverness. It's professional slickness. It's claims to sort of great secret higher knowledge. That, um, that hotline uh, to a uh, spiritual hotline that Jonathan Lamb referred to. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power. What we have comes from God and is empowered by God. And what we have can demolish strongholds. So what the professional oratorial sort of speakers that the Corinthians had been bedazzled by, what these super apostles had brought in, what these people with you know, fantastic white glowing teeth and highfalutin hairdos and all the rest of it had brought in, was something which actually was also ineffectual. Rather than destroying strongholds, people holding out against God, it actually was reinforcing them. And rather than building up, just anticipating what Paul writes in verse 8, rather than building up the Corinthians in Christ, it was actually pulling them down. Even though it looked like it was creating a lovely edifice, it was actually tearing them down. So they have divine power. Our weapons, the simple preaching of the word of God and the power of the spirit. The humility, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The honesty, openness, the directness of speech. A spade's a spade. Sin is sin. The uncomfortable challenging. The crossing of, of socially polite lines. Or as Don Carson calls it in, uh, in, in The Gagging of God, the drawing of lines when drawing lines is rude. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What's a stronghold? Um, a stronghold is, if you like, an, uh, an attitude, um, an attitudinal and an intellectual entrenched and protected fortified resistance to God. A stronghold is when a person or a group of people or just the culture in a place is, is not only ignorant of the gospel, 
but without ever having heard the gospel, is profoundly, deeply entrenched against anything that the gospel is going to say about the greatness of God and the centrality of God in the universe, about the supremacy of Christ, about the reality of sin, about coming judgment, about the need for forgiveness, not mitigating circumstances, not being let off the hook, but mere, plain forgiveness about grace, about Christ being our righteousness, everything that's going to demolish self-righteousness, everything that's going to tear apart the self-made man. See, everything that's going to resist the gospel, everything that's going to resist good news from God, Everything that's going to fortify human sufficiency. Everything that's going to fortify shaking the fist at God. Everything that's going to build fortifications around your ego, yourself. Only the gospel. Only the simple, straightforward gospel of God preached in the power of the Spirit We'll get through that. Now, Paul knew the content of the oratorical schools. Paul was not dim nor uneducated. Paul could ratchet up his Greek when he was in the presence of leaders. But Paul knew that trusting himself and his eloquence when he wanted to turn it on would never get through a stronghold. And Paul knew that even the cleverest argument was not enough. Because what lies beneath the resistance is not some intellectual dimness is not, uh, oh, I've never seen it that way. What lies behind the stronghold and what makes a person build those strongholds is totally natural rebellion against God. As far as Paul is concerned, nothing that Paul can do on his own, however clever, in whatever language, quoting whatever poets, will ever get through that. Because that attitude behind the stronghold that built the stronghold is sin. And nobody but God can take somebody who is bad and so revive their heart, so regenerate, not revive, the dead in transgressions and sins, so regenerate their heart in the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, that they begin to hear the gospel, not as what Paul had written earlier on to the church in Corinth, not as natural people who regard it as foolishness and who cannot understand it, but as those who in the power of the Spirit can actually understand it and receive it. So what these highfalutin people are doing is totally ineffectual in terms of the progress of the gospel in Corinth. And it is no way for a Christian to live if we're going to live by the gospel ourselves. And that thing about sin and rebellion against God is what informs the way that Paul writes in verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension. So it's not just an intellectual argument against the existence of God or against the Bible being authentic or whatever it happens to be. There is a pretension. So we, we, we demolish arguments and every pretension that, self, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God 
And what are we looking for? Are we looking for people to understand some propositions that we give them? Well, we are, but actually more has to be done. We take captive every thought to make it what? Not to make it correct. It needs to be. But that's not the gist of the work of the gospel. No, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, twice from Paul and also from Peter, believing the gospel, receiving and accepting the gospel, is called obedience to the gospel or obeying the truth. Because believing in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, and the, the, what, what believing faith means is precisely that you submit to somebody else's statements, you submit to somebody else's rightness, you submit to somebody else's work for you, you yield. Believing faith in the New Testament has at its core, um, amongst accession and agreement and all those things and trust, it has to have submission in there. So, you submit your doubts and fears to the car salesman when you believe that the car that you're about to buy will not explode when you turn the ignition key. You might have many, many doubts. You might have heard of all sorts of horrible stories about how cars do that kind of thing. By and large, they don't. Okay, if you've got a diesel car, it's not going to do that. Diesel cars don't do that. If you've got a Samsung phone, it might. Probably will. So you get the point. Your fears bow to the superior engineering knowledge experience of the person that you're going to buy the car from. Now, Paul, when he's talking about people being converted, being regenerated, when he's talking about people becoming Christians, couches it in terms of the warfare as approaching and breaking down the stronghold of sinful, rebellious opposition to God and taking every thought in the heads of those inside captive to Christ, obedient to Christ, believing the gospel. We've got echoes of, 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 of the triumph imagery that Paul uses earlier on with the Corinthians about you know, leading... The, the, the procession, the glorious victory procession with the captives following the, the general who has led, led the campaign. So we take captive every thought to make it obedience, obedient to Christ. Now, Paul sort of isn't simply talking about the way he's done his gospel work, which has been coming under fire from, from his opposers in, in the fellowship in Corinth. He's, he's taking it forward into his ministry with the Corinthians themselves. So verse 6, and we will be ready to punish every act of their disobedience, his adversaries. Once your obedience that is, in your rejection of them and in, in your rejection of the falseness of their gospel and the falseness of their picture of the Christian life is complete. So what he wants, what, what wants you to do with them is precisely what he's done in Corinth when they preach the gospel in Corinth and what he's done everywhere else, which is by preaching the gospel in the power of the Spirit to break down animosity to Christ. so that people obey him and acknowledge that he is Lord. And that's not just what is going on when he's been preaching the gospel, doing the evangelism. 
It's how he's also pastoring these people. So it is the job of a Christian leader to help a fellowship, minister, pastor, vicar, call them what you will, elders, to help us to keep taking every thought captive and obedient to Christ. It's not the job of leaders to, to, to be, if you like, great shopkeepers who provide what we want. It's not the role of Christian leaders either to conform to expectations that we may dump on them, which are basically just worldly expectations. It is the role of those in leadership in the church to, to keep waging war on sin. To keep demolishing the strongholds. That, that even as believers we can start building up again. As they were in Corinth. And in demolishing those, those fresh ramparts that we built, just, just taking our thoughts captive to Christ again. And then, by what authority does he do this? Well, the authority that he's doing it with is the authority that comes from Christ. And so he's not shy about it. He's not sort of demurring his way and tugging himself out of the room by the forelock. He's not falsely modest. He's not sort of so self-deprecating in a sort of a, a you know, classically British understated kind of way that Christ's authority just goes missing. Why does Paul boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down? Why is he not ashamed of it? It is because for him to be ashamed of it would be for him, ironically, to put himself between Christ and the people. If he was ashamed of the authority that Christ had given him in front of the people, if he was so shy about it and so self-deprecating sort of about his own place there, what would that have done? It would have been to take away from the authority of Christ. In apologizing for himself, he would have been apologizing for the person who sent him there. And so because Christ's authority is final, is full, and is present, Paul was not being shy. He wasn't afraid to speak boldly. He wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade and a sin a sin. He wasn't afraid to expose that which was destructive in their fellowship. Not because he was an arrogant bloke, but because Christ is not only the model, not only the content, but the real and present authority in his ministry. Why is it that sometimes um, ministers, preachers, say things that we don't want to hear? Why sometimes do they sound as if they're just going a bit over the top? Why do we never want them to make us feel, ouch? Why do we want them to be nice all the time and never forceful? Paul didn't go down that route 
of the smooth, slick, professional, slightly oily, smarmy speaker because he had to speak with authority because the authority was given to him by Jesus. And if he didn't, they would never be built up. They would never grow stronger. They would never grow stronger together. They would never grow nearer Jesus. And so he goes on in the final section, verses 9 to 11. He says, look, I, I don't want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. Just so key. I mean, you just, this is just such a, you know, a human straight out there letter, isn't it? To you don't see him. You know, he's, he's, he's writing away or getting somebody else to write. And, and he's dictating a letter. And, and, and he says, look, I'm, I'm not trying to frighten you. You just hear the, the, the kind of... Um, earnestness in his voice and, and, and his awareness of the, the ability that they have in Corinth to totally misunderstand what he's saying. Their minds have been so corrupted by these worldlings. So I, I don't want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. He's urging on them Christ in Christ's meekness and gentleness and Christ's authority. He's urging them to, to, to let every thought be taken captive to Christ. So he's not trying to frighten them, but he's telling them the truth. And he's aware that, 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 that there are people there who will twist his words. And so he ends with this, um, this note about his character being totally consistent. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we're present. If, it's, if, if when we get there, you haven't responded to all that's been written in the authority of Christ, then we're going to have to be as forceful with you face to face as we have been in the letters. Don't let people in Corinth tell you that, well, he's like that when he's away, but when he's here, he's going to be useless, isn't he? So you know, ignore what he's saying. So there is Paul pouring out his heart to the church in Corinth, pleading with them, begging is the word he uses, isn't it? Begging that they should bring every attitude, every thought, every opinion about what Christian leadership is like. Obedient to Christ. So, uh, brothers and sisters, in St. Peter's, or anywhere else, whatever church you are part of, um, what do you want most from those who lead you and lead you through the preaching of the Word of God? What do you want most? What we should want most and those who lead us, what we should want most is that they lead us to Jesus. And really, you know, if you can be led to Jesus, if you can be led to the one who rules the universe, if you can be led to the one who from the throne rules with truth and grace. If you can be led to the one who knows your sins and has borne them in his body on the cross already for you. If you can be led to Jesus. Why would you want to be led anywhere else? What other model is there? What other saviour is there? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would uh, give to those who lead uh, the courage, integrity, the clarity of not just thought about the issues, but conviction about the issues. Not to do as worldlings do, 
nor to do as we want them to do when we're just being worldlings, but to lead us to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might really, really want every thought to be taken captive in obedience to Christ. We pray that we would want this so much that we would want our leaders to do nothing other than that. Nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to close our service by singing the song, O Church Arise, the words of which will appear on the screen. O Church Arise and put your armor on, hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. Let's stand together as we sing this song and remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.